Welcome to episode 23 of the Therapy Explained podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. David Lee, a psychologist, scientist and clinical director for Sleep Unlimited. David specialises in treating insomnia with cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia, otherwise known as CBTI, considered the gold standard for treatment for insomnia. We covered a history of CBTI, the science behind sleep and how this guides the treatment in CBTI, leading causes and maintaining factors of insomnia, how modern technology hinders sleep quality, and some of the main techniques used in CBTI. Hi David, thanks for joining me today. Hi James, thanks very much for inviting me on, nice to see you. Today we're going to talk about CBT for insomnia, uh, David. If you wouldn't mind starting off by explaining what that is. Sure, so it's a CBT for insomnia or CBTI as it's known is a uh, a set of psychological and behavioural interventions that are now nice recommended treatment pathway of choice for managing a sleep problem. Um, obviously, we've got lots of different CBTs now. Beck's work in the 60s with anxiety and depression has now been sort of expanded out into different areas. So there's CBT for psychosis, CBT for eating disorders, and we've got our own version within, within the sleep world called CBTI. And I guess just to... For those who it might be their first time hearing about CBT, uh, CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. And I imagine across all those domains, it has the same principles. It looks at how our beliefs and our behaviours influence um, how we feel physically and emotionally. And that if we can try to adjust those, challenge those, uh, explore those, we can maybe notice an improvement in whatever the symptoms that we're we're working on but it's here and now change goal focused and i presume and that's the same for cbti sure so yeah and and the symptoms that you we describe in with insomnia obviously tiredness and, and not having motivation energy low mood um and and absolutely like you say that the beliefs and the behaviors so broadly speaking most people who don't sleep well are at least a little bit anxious about it so there's an underlying belief system there but also there's an awful lot of, of behavioural things that we can do which can either help or hinder our sleep. So we're looking at adjusting those. So in, in essence, CBTI is, is just trying to do two things. It's trying to put in all the stuff that sleep likes and get rid of all the stuff that's an obstacle to that. So like drinking too much caffeine, or nicotine too close to bedtime, things like that. Stimulants which will interfere with sleep. We try and get them further away from bedtime so that as we come to bedtime, we're in, a, in the optimal situation to get to sleep. So it is absolutely about managing the, the belief systems underlying, and often that's anxiety, as I say, and looking at maladaptive behaviours and getting rid of them or re, re, getting them away from bedtime at least. In my own work as a CV therapist, I do find that the behavioural aspects are so important you know, sometimes you can consider CBT, you can have CBT with a big C and a small B, or CBT with a, CBT with a small C and a, a big B, where there's more emphasis on the, the thoughts or yeah. the behaviours. And um, I do find that the behaviours can be yeah. so helpful because we've got a little bit more control over behaviours and you can maybe see bigger changes in a short period of time. And my understanding with CBTI is that it's maybe a little bit more behaviour heavy. Oh, absolutely. And that is one of the criticisms of conventional CBTI is that it's quite weak on the C. It, it's, it's more BT than it is CBT, yeah. We might absolutely. come back to that um, when we talk a little bit more about you know, what it, that looks like in the here and now. If we could maybe talk about how we've gotten to where we are with CBTI, you know, like the foundations of um, CBT for insomnia. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the reasons why it's nice recommended 
um, now is, is because of a, a large body of research that goes back quite a long way. Um, and it, you, the origins of CBCI go back to the early 1970s. Uh, Dick Bootson came up with stimulus control theory in 1972. And that's a big part of, of, um, of CBTI and has influenced it um, going forward. <clears throat> then when we get come into the 80s, um, a guy called Spielman developed a, a, a model of, of insomnia, his three Ps model. Um, and that then inspired sleep restriction therapy, which a lot of people might have heard of as well. And that's another fairly fundamental part of, of CBTI. All of that was happening on the back of problems with conventional management of insomnia, which in the 60s were the barbiturates, Valium. Um, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, the benzodiazepine drugs, so the EPAM drugs like diazepam, temazepam. We started to notice quite significant issues with side effects and hangover effects tolerance, addiction, dependency um, with these sleeping tablets. Uh, so because of the negative side effects of them, some sort of behaviorists and psychologists started to get together and see uh, some of this work that had been done by Bootsin and Spielman in the 70s and 80s and thinking, actually, maybe there's another way here, um, a psychobehavioral approach. And they started to play around with these different ideas, Bootsin, Spielman and others, and developed in, in the 80s and 90s this CBTI package, which then has been um, researched fairly extensively. And, and there, there was a, a you know, the, the key players in the field published a big review in 99, which reviewed 40 decent studies and showed a 70% hit rate for CBTI, which is really good. You know, seven out of ten people benefiting from it if they, if they comply with the, the process. Uh, and then what was clever about what these guys did, people like Charles Moran and Colin Espy um, and others, the, the heavyweights in this field, they, they repeated that review in 2004. And instead of 40 studies, they had 400. And instead of just adult populations, it was kids and cancer patients, pain patients, older people, you know, a whole range of different populations. And they repeated that 70% finding again in 2004. And that's really why NICE in the UK, National Institutes for Health in the States and, and across the developed world, all, all health commissioning bodies on the back of that work um, and that big review in 2004 and other work since, they've now, CBTI now supersedes uh, the drugs as, as your treatment pathway of choice. So prior to 2014, if you went to see your, your GP with a sleep problem, number one on the list would have been the tablets. After 2014, it's flipped now because of this really large body of evidence that we've got for CBTI. So it's now become your weapon of choice um, because it's very effective, 70% excellent, and uh, it's non-toxic. You, know, you don't get the side effects that we get from the, the sleeping tablets, which are significant. You know, a lot of people who take sleeping tablets really don't get on with the grogginess the next day and the befuddled brain. You know, they really... If there is another way, they, they, they will take it. So fortunately, we now have CBTI out there and um, there is another Absolutely. option. I didn't realise it's only been seven or eight years since it's been the treatment of choice. Yeah, and it's been around for a long time. It's just taken health commissioners time to, to realise its efficacy and uh, raise it to where it is now, yeah. And as you say, 70% is excellent. CBT services in the UK... They've got an, a target of, I think, 50% recovery rate for people accessing them for you know, mild to moderate anxiety and depression, and that would be considered good. So 70% really is excellent. 
yeah, I mean, a good drug will hit 30%. 30% it won't do much for, and 30% they're going to have some side effects, you know, average, averaged out. So, And that's a good drug. So the fact that we're hitting 70 here is, is, is excellent, yeah. And it's in line with the ethos of CBT, which is helping someone become their own therapist because you equip them with the knowledge and skills to manage their sleep, uh, unlike medication. Mm. Yeah, so we analogise that as it the, the, the tablets are, are giving the man a fish and you've just got to keep doing that every night for the rest of his life. Whereas CBTI is teaching the man to fish. So it's absolutely that point. Yeah, you're, you're empowering the patient with skills and knowledge that they can then go forward and manage themselves for the rest of their life. They don't need to go around the revolving door every month, come back for a repeat pres prescription. Like many interventions in CBT, uh, they're an amalgamation of kind of individual research that has now been packaged together. And that sounds like to be the case for CBTI as well. Can you just kind of explain a little bit about those, those individual interventions um, or treatments like stimulus control, the three Ps and sleep restriction? Maybe we start about that and then think about what they've um, amalgamated into. So there's a range of different techniques. Um, there's a range of different um, sort of structures. So you've got sleep restriction, you've got stimulus control, you would have heard of sleep hygiene and psychoeducation, explaining what sleep is and how it works. That very often CBTI is front-ended with a bit of psychoeducation about the different stages of sleep, uh, why those different stages are important for us. Um, and then good sleep practices, I refer to I mean, sleep hygiene. Is, most people will have heard of that, but I just think it, it, it sounds a bit silly. <laughs> uh, clean sleep, you know. So we talk about good sleep practices, you know, sleep likes quiet, dark, boring, comfortable um that that sort of stuff um and then uh, like i say sleep restriction then if if you're in france they like paradoxical intention that's another um another technique which is which has been lifted and packaged in to to cbti programs as well so instead of going to bed and trying to sleep which is what insomniacs do and the harder you try the more elusive your sleep becomes paradoxical intention says right terry you go to bed and tonight i want you just to stay awake and then when he stops thinking about trying to sleep and starts thinking about trying to stay awake. He's now not thinking about sleep and he goes to sleep. So paradoxical intention sometimes is in there, sometimes it's not in there. Um, relaxation strategies. Uh, when I was writing my book on this, I, I went into the literature to just to research it. I, I think I found 27 different types of relaxation strategies that have been employed variously in all these CBTI packages. So so which one or other of these relaxation strategies is more or less effective? We don't really know that yet. And then you've got these sort of cognitive approaches as well. And that, again, will depend on uh, the expertise of the person you're seeing. So if you're seeing someone who, who does CBTI, who's a trained psychologist, then they might be quite skilled at doing more deeper psychological work, whereas other people might be less psychologically well trained. And therefore, you might get quite low level input on the on the cognitive side of things things without you know about anxiety and low mood so again they're all quite various and this is one of the criticisms of conventional cbti is that the package is not fully defined sometimes like if you're in france paradoxical intention is in there sometimes it's not sometimes the relaxation strategies come on week two not week five you know so it's, it's all a little bit of a mishmash at the moment despite that it still works 70 percent of the time even though it's really quite sort of clunky at the minute. Um, so recent, you know, current work that's going on at the moment is that people are starting to smash it apart and look at the various elements of a CBTI package and say, well, 
where is the potency, which is more or less effective than other bits. And it's looking like, and Moran and Espy are doing this sort of work now, it's looking like stimulus control therapy and sleep restriction therapy, which really are the cornerstones of this, that they're the oldest bits of CBTI going back into the 70s and the 80s. It's looking like those two are the most potent bits. just explain what they are, uh, David? Um, you know, it's given us a rough idea of what you mean by stimulus control and sleep restriction. Sure. So stimulus control is is doing all the stuff that sleep likes and getting rid of the stuff that sleep doesn't like. So it's all about how we, we behave, but also how we relate to our bedroom. So good, good sleepers will have good stimulus control without really thinking about it. They'll be physically active outdoors in the daytime. They'll be tired physically because they're active. They're outdoors a lot, so they get melatonin which from the natural daylight. That helps them sleep. They go to bed when they yawn. They get tired. They go to bed and they, they have a good routine. Um, insomniacs will not necessarily do this stuff. Most insomniacs have fairly chaotic routines. Now, sleep hates that. That's poor stimulus control. Good sleepers, when they go to the bed to go to sleep, that's all they do in their bed. They're good sleepers. So they just go to bed and go to sleep in it. So just the process of walking into the bedroom is hugely cueing for sleep. That's good stimulus control. Poor sleepers, they, they're not going to sleep. They're insomniacs. So they'll import stuff into their bedrooms to occupy themselves whilst they're not sleeping. So they'll have the dog and the telly and the knitting and the vodka and the Sudoku and the iPad and the books and the ashtray and all everything. So it's an everything room. And as soon as they walk in there, they're just queued up for action. What am I doing first? Knitting, vodka, dog, not sleep. And that's poor stimulus control. So, so the stimulus control therapy side of things is just identifying all the adaptive sleep behaviors and just encouraging them and identifying all the maladaptive sleep behaviors and getting rid of them. And that's really effective. A very practical approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's stimulus control, but and sleep restriction therapy is just sort of what it says on the tin. Um, I just make you a bit tired for a while by not letting you have enough sleep. And then when you're a bit tired, you're gonna go to sleep. And you know, even the worst insomniac in the world still sleeps. You know, sleep's controlled by your brainstem you can't fight it. It's coming for you at some point. And I can get the worst insomniac in the world to sleep for 12 hours straight, easy. Just keep you awake for three days and three nights. You'll be so tired. You will sleep like the dead after that. So sleep restriction therapy just leans into that, the sleep homeostatic drive. You know, the more awake we are, the more tired we get, and we need to relieve that. And the only way you can relieve that is through sleep. So if someone's struggling with their sleep, and, and it's maybe a bit chaotic, we, we try and identify a, a good routine, restrict that person's sleep for a little while, and then gradually reintroduce that sleep opportunity, fit, around, fit that around a good routine, and then stick to that routine. Sleep restriction therapy, again, is a highly effective intervention because it's, it's absolutely leaning into that neurobiological essential requirement that we have to sleep every day. Um, so I can, yeah, we, we, just in, we just increase the sleep pressure, the sleep drive by making someone more tired. Um, so it is quite a straightforward intervention, um, but there are rules with it. And there, there's, there's some new stuff coming out. Um, I don't know if you've come across intensive sleep retraining. It's an Australian idea. It's come up about fairly recently. Um, this new great thing is 
there's nothing new under the sun. It's just an amped up sleep restriction therapy. And they're pulling people in and only letting them sleep for an hour and a half or two hours a night, putting in loads of sleep pressure. It's getting a lot of traction because it seems quite extreme. So the, the press are all over it. But it's dangerous. It's unethical to behave in that way. You know, sleep restriction therapy would never restrict anybody less than five hours. Yeah, we think if you've had four and a half hours of sleep, you're safe to drive your car. But if you've not had four and a half hours of sleep, you should phone in sick. You're not safe. You're not going to be you'll have an accident like you're much more likely to have an accident if you're if you're that tired. So to restrict someone's sleep down to an hour and a half is dangerous and unethical. And we shouldn't be doing that. Um, but you see this sort of sensational stuff popping up every now and again. And the other thing I should, I should say with that, just to finish this, this point off, we don't do sleep restriction therapy with kids. Anybody who's psychologically very vulnerable, like bipolar patients or psychosis, definitely don't restrict sleep in those groups. And older people who might be vulnerable or, or say living with dementia or, or stroke or brain injury, we wouldn't do sleep restriction therapy with those groups of people because they're, they're vulnerable anyway. So you've got to be quite resilient to deal with a course of sleep restriction therapy. It hurts a bit. Mm, I can imagine it, the additional stress in the short term, at least. I do know a bit about sleep restriction, and I kind of think it's kind of helpful to understand the science behind sleep, to understand how, how it is so helpful. Um, in particular, the stages of sleep. So I think you know, the first few hours of mm -hmm. the night, you get your deepest sleep, and then it becomes a bit more fractured and it gets a bit lighter. And what you're looking to do is you're not even necessarily restricting how many hours you sleep. You're just being in bed for a shorter period of time so that you may actually be sleeping as much as you do, but it's a higher quality sleep. It's less broken. You're getting that restorative sleep, which is considered the most important. Yeah. So, yeah, you're, I think you're, you're, you're spot on, sort of spot on with that. We cycle between REM and non-REM sleep throughout the night. And we predominate, we get more deep non-REM at the start of the night and more REM and light non-REM at the end of the night and waking. So the fractured bit later in the night, that's, that's normal. Um, so that, that's, that very regular cycling is quite important. And we, we get our deep non-REM sleep early in the night. And that seems to be the sleep that's the most important for us. Um, so I, I use the analogy of, of my brain, your brain being a busy office and every thought that you have during the day generates a piece of paper in your brain, in your office. And some research came out a few months ago saying we make 32,000 decisions a day or something. I don't know who counted. That seems like a big number, but that's a lot of paper. So at the end of the day, my office is full up of paper. And it's when I go into this deep non-REM sleep. That's when my secretary comes out and starts to go through these bits of paper and say, well, Dave, you know, there's a big invoice there. You've got to remember that one. What's this piece of paper here? You saw a Coke can blowing down the high street. You don't need to remember that, Dave. Trash it. Now, if you get enough of that deep non-REM sleep, you tidy up the office, you wake up the next day. It's a, you know, it's all neat and tidy in there. But if you haven't had enough sleep, then you haven't tidied up the office. And this, this leads to a, well, where's that invoice? Where's, what's this Coke can doing here? Causes me confusion, anxiety, befuddlement. And at a fundamental level, we, we can analogize any sort of mental health problem as an untidy office. And sleep's a fundament to that. You, you can't meet anybody with any sort of enduring mental health problem who doesn't also have a sleep problem. The two things come hand in hand. And I can take mentally unhealthy people, get them sleeping better, and their mood improves because they tidy up the office better. So 
if I deprive you of your sleep or limit your sleep for a while, when I leave you alone, you'll get more of that deep non-REM sleep in recovery. So that's another reason why, and, and that's the sleep that w- makes us feel good, that refreshing feeling that you get after you've had a really good night's sleep. You will have had a lot of that deep non-REM sleep in there. So one of the things that sleep restriction is doing is encouraging you on your recovery night to get more of that and tidy up the office better, feel better. So on that, that's what's going on with the, the increasing the sleep drive and more deep non-REM sleep. But you've also mentioned there about curtailing time in bed. So you might also, you might sleep for the same amount of time, say seven and a half hours, but you're only in bed for seven and a half hours, not in bed for 10. So we've got a metric we use in in the sleep world called sleep efficiency, which you may have heard of and your listeners may have heard of. It's a measure of the proportion of time you spend in bed asleep. So if I'm in bed for eight hours and I sleep for eight hours, I'll have a sleep efficiency of 100%. If I'm in bed for eight hours, but I only sleep for four hours, that's 50%, which is rubbish. Now we've got a clinical threshold of 85%. I want you in bed asleep 85% of the time or more and in bed awake 15% of the time or less. And the reason is this is the stimulus control stuff. Good sleepers don't lounge around in bed, not sleeping, worrying about it. They're just in bed asleep. So cutting your time back in bed means you're just gonna be in bed asleep more and not in bed awake more, worrying about not sleeping. So this helps us to take the poor sleeper and break them out of that habit of being in bed, associating the bed with being anxious about not sleeping. So sleep restrictions, the therapy says, get up and get out of your bedroom if you're not sleeping. So we push your sleep efficiency up to wards 100. um, And then you're starting to associate the bed and the bedroom with sleep, not with not sleep. So that's the more sort of psychological side of it as well with them with, um, restricting And I do wonder if you have a re- more refreshing night's sleep. Does a good night's sleep beget another good night's sleep? Because that's what I find. If I have a bad night's sleep, the chance of the next one kind of increase a little bit more. So we see very circular habitual kind of experiences going on with, with people. We see it with depression. I mean, depression cycles over weekly weeks, six, you know, six, 12 weeks, we get different cycles of mood going up and down. It's, it's faster with insomnia. It's sort of a, often a three, four, five day cycle. You have a bad night, a really bad night, an average night, a good night. And, and it, it cycles like that. And you, you, you sort of liken it to um, hits and misses. And the insomniacs just having more miss nights than hit nights. But they do have hit nights. They do have nights where they catch up and sleep well. And a good sleeper's getting more hits than misses. And when you're treating someone with insomnia, it, it, it's, sometimes things can work very quickly. Um, there, there are sometimes interventions just click with people um, and can work very, very fast. But other times it's, it's more graded. And, and I, I, when I'm talking to, to patients like that, we'll say, look, it, it's, it, we might not flip this instantly, but what we're trying to do is just turn more of the misses into hits by doing all the right things and just gradually move out of it. So I think you're absolutely right that you do end up in a cyclical patterns. And if you have a bad night, you think, oh, I might have another one. And that you're already setting yourself up in your mind to have another bad night because you're starting to think about it. Um, But eventually you'll have to quit. Eventually your brainstem is going to take over and say, shut up, we're going to go to sleep now. Because you do, every night you sleep, even the worst insomniacs still sleep. Am I right in thinking that when we're sleeping, going back to the tidying up the office, that our brain shrinks by like 40% and it gets like 
rinsed. Now, I'm sure I read that somewhere before, but it sounds a bit like something out of a science fiction. Is there any truth to that? So there's been a bit of work done in the, in the mouse model, in the mouse brain, um, and we... we shrink, shrinkage is, um, isn't quite... Sort, sort of the right word, but the, the neurons sort of close in a little bit on themselves, and then there's more space around them, and that allows the cerebrospinal fluid to flush through the brain and remove toxins, and this sort of brain-cleaning idea, um, which sort of fits maybe with that office analogy that I've just come up with there. Actually, you're cleaning your brain out. And by being awake and active during the day, the brain makes waste products and and sleep's important to to flush them out. So we know that's happening in the mouse brain and we've no reason to assume that that wouldn't be the case for us as well because we're mammals too. So yes, we do think there's a little bit of... um, Neuronal shrinkage is a tricky one. People start to get alarmed by that and think dementia. Um, when when you say that, yeah, brain shrinking, uh, it's it's not not really shrinking, but they're, they're, there's just a little bit more space in between the neurons. They sort of close in a bit on themselves to allow that cerebrospinal fluid to walk around and flush out. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. I didn't dream it. There is some truth to it. I read it somewhere. Back to the topic of insomnia. Is all insomnia the same? I'm not sure. Is there a definition or is there variations like subcategories of insomnia well then no there's, so there's various different types of insomnia and um if you go back to the dsm4 criteria you'd, you'd tick sort of three different domains so it's up it obviously it's a problem with sleep but that could either be getting to sleep staying asleep or waking up too early in the morning there's frequency and chronicity around that so it's got to happen three or more nights a week for at least a month that's the second domain. And the third domain is you've got to have daytime dysfunction, either sociological, psychological, occupational, um, to meet a diagnosis of insomnia under DSM-4, but that's been superseded by DSM-5 now. So those criteria are still in there, but daytime dysfunction's been expanded out in low energy, low mood, fatigue, irritability, hyperactivity, aggression, um, Problems with interpersonal relationships, dysfunction at work or at school, problems with family members. We expanded that out quite a lot. So, and and three or more nights a week for at least a month, and trouble getting to sleep, staying asleep, or waking too early in the morning. So, we can start to now break this down. You can have acute insomnia or chronic, more or less than a month. You can have DIS, difficulty initiating sleep. DMS, difficulty maintaining sleep, or EMA, early morning awakening. You can mess around with your routine. You can have a schedule insomnia, so jet lag, shift work. Twice a year we change the clocks. That's a schedule insomnia. You've got all the parasomnias. They're types of insomnia as well, so sleepwalking, sleep talking, teeth grinding, bed wetting, sleep eating, sleep driving, sexomnia, sexual activity in sleep. And even sleep homicide, people have killed people in their sleep. They're all the parasomnias. Then you've got dysomnias like snoring, um, apnea, not breathing properly in sleep, narcolepsy, people falling asleep uncontrollably. And we've also got um, the newest form of insomnia. It is orthosomnia, which is measured sleep. So this is a sleep problem that's been given to an otherwise healthy person um, by them over monitoring their sleep with a tracker and 
it starts to take their attention to their sleep and then they start to think about it. And of course, good sleepers don't do that. They don't think about their sleep at all. Whereas bad sleepers think about their sleep a lot. Um, so anything which takes your attention to sleep is a bad idea. That's not good stimulus control. And so we're seeing a lot of this with sleep trackers and um, wearables um, reporting, and, and they're, they're wildly inaccurate anyway. So, so now we've got a new form of insomnia called orthosomnia, where people are being freaked out by this kit telling them they're not sleeping properly, um, whereas actually they're probably sleeping fine. If they just ignored the, what their wearable was telling them, they'd, they'd be fine. So there's a whole range of different insomnias out there, and it's the skill of the clinician is to identify, well, what type of sleep problem do we have here? And that will then inform how we treat that person. So Terry just drinks way too much coffee and he's not sleeping well. Marjorie's got long COVID. She's broken her hip. She's in pain. She's bereaved. She's lost her social mobility because her husband used to drive her around. She's drinking too much sherry. She's in a world of pain. You will be treating Terry and Marjorie in very different ways. You know, Terry just needs a gentle slap. Stop drinking so much coffee, Terry, nicely. And it you know, take five minutes. Marjorie's going to need, I don't know, 26 weeks of cognitive analytic therapy to work through the abuse history. Um, yeah, all, all of that. So, so men, we, when we, we talked about Spielman earlier, and he, he came up with his three Ps model of insomnia. So that he says we're all predisposed to having a sleep problem. Some of us are vulnerable and some of us are really resilient, but everyone's predisposed to getting a sleep problem. Then something precipitates that. Marjorie's bereaved or breaks her hip or gets long COVID. And then she starts to engage in stupid stuff, which then perpetuates the problem. So there's predisposition, precipitation, and then perpetuation. They're the three Ps. Now you can, it's useful clinically because it, it being able to establish how vulnerable or resilient someone is before they have the, the condition is useful. If they're really vulnerable, you're going to have to try really hard. If they're really resilient, you maybe maybe they're more motivated and they're going to be easier to work with. What triggered this? When did it trigger? And now what have you engaged with over the last 10 years of having your sleep problem? Um, what other behaviours have you, maladaptive behaviours have you engaged with? So uh, you can write as many different insomnia narratives as there are insomniacs on the planet. And if you get that narrative right for someone, then that the formulation will fall from that. And if you've got the perfect formulation, the interventions fall naturally out of that. So it, it's, it's useful to think of those three Ps in the clinical sense in order to write the natural history of someone's insomnia. How vulnerable were they? What set it off? And what have they done along the way? And how long has it been going on for? Two weeks? That person's going to easily remember what happened two weeks ago. 22 years? Oh, they might have forgotten what set it off in the first place. Much harder to treat. And 22 years of maladaptive behaviours. Well, now I drink three cups of chamomile tea and I've got 15 lavender pillows and all these sort of rituals that insomniacs will get into. All that just layers up over time. So it's really useful to think of that clinically. Write the natural history of someone's insomnia and everyone's going to be different do a good job at that, then the intervention will just naturally fall out. Terry, stop drinking the coffee. <laughs> so not too different really to standard CBT when you think about what are some significant events that maybe shaped your perceptions and how have they led you to adapt to the world? Yeah, what, what are the triggers? Um, 
No, a really common one in sleep. Most women in their middle age will trace the origins of their sleep problem back to the birth of their first child. Yeah, it's a really common trigger for insomnia in in, in middle aged people. Is that so? Yeah, identifying the triggers. You know, what set it off? That that then informs what I need to do to treat that person. Any other triggers that it might be mindful to, to watch out for, uh, Dave? You know, ones that you see come up. I'm not sure if there there are there are like a select few that stand out. Uh, well, there's a pandemic going on, and that's a big a big trigger for a lot of people. Um, we've seen increased rates of anxiety, obviously. Um, we've seen routines change quite radically, and and they change very radically overnight on the 23rd of March 2020 you know you might have been in a, a fairly consistent routine getting up commuting to work coming back you know it, you might have been doing that for decades and then all of a sudden that that changed overnight um, and sleep loves good routines so that was another insult that we all experienced on well, all of us but most of us um, striking a work-life balance has been harder so people are now bringing work home and maybe even into their bedroom. So the poor stimulus control again. Is this a sleep room or a work room? And 25% of people have admitted to drinking more alcohol in lockdowns and alcohol is not good for sleep either. So for those four reasons, we've seen a doubling of sleep problems in the last couple of years as a result of the pan pandemic. So the, uh, the pandemic more broadly has been a big trigger for a lot of people's mental health. Um, but also sleep. And of course, sleep and mental health are so interlinked. I know it's hard to see where one stops and one begins. Mm. And so if they're at least some of the recent, and I guess some of them will have been longstanding, let's say work stress, alcohol use um, yeah. as triggers. How about maintenance? I guess alcohol could come under uh, maintenance factors, but what would be some of the, say, modern maintaining factors that maybe people maybe aren't so aware of that? I guess and one you said earlier, I think, the, is it the... I'm um, also insomnia, and um, you know the, the measured sleep quality. Insomnia, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, one of the things that's new in DSM five criteria that wasn't there in DSM four is providing yourself with enough opportunity to sleep, and we're seeing this more and more with the pressure of modern life, twenty four seven generation, that people are pinching sleep for life, so they'll. You know, someone might require, say, seven and a half, eight hours of sleep. But we see this quite a lot in young professionals. They, you know, they want to go out to work, work overtime to pay off bills. They want to then go out and socialize, go to the gym. And actually, they're not getting home until midnight, not getting to bed till one and getting up at six to go and do it all again. And they're only getting five, six hours of sleep. But actually, they need more like seven or, or eight. So with sort of advancing pressures, work pressures, societal pressures that we're under more now than I think we ever really have been before, we're seeing more of that. So DSM-5 now has criteria to make sure that people are, that we're identifying people who actually sleep fine, they're just not giving themselves enough time to get the sleep that they need. So that's that's certainly new and exciting and a little bit alerting to us um, in, the, in the more modern world. Yeah, so burning the candle at both ends. I do wonder how much uh, screen time plays a role in this. Um, I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, and, and again, that's another sort of the scourge of the modern age of these, these flat screen devices that are absolutely ubiquitous. They're everywhere now and everybody's got one. 
and we know that the blue light that's emitted by them does interfere with sleep. There's some fairly well-established research on that sort of from started in the mid 2015. Uh, Paul Gringrass from UCL did the the seminal study on that, showing that light from Kindles, e-readers, phones, tablets, all screens, this blue light too close to bedtime interferes with our sleep. And there are more of these screens and we are spending more time plugged into them than we ever have before. Um, I use, use this analogy when I'm sort of teaching um, this stuff to, to health professionals. I do that two, three times a week. We run training courses and, uh, and I point at the screen. I say, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm not supposed to be Zooming. I'm supposed to be farming. That's what I've evolved to do. I'm supposed to be outdoors in the natural daylight. And we know that that massively boosts your melatonin production in your pineal gland, in your brain. And that's sleep promoting, which is why a day outside is really, really tiring. And that's what we're supposed to do. I'm supposed to be out there hunter gathering, not sat in front of this unnatural, low light level blue screen. And, and we know that and there's some, some uh, quite a decent study actually came out of Israel a couple of years ago, looking at child screen use. And they, they, they found a bunch of heavy users, kids using screens for six plus hours a day and compared them to a group of other kids who were light users, less than two hours a day. And the difference in their sleep and their mental health outcomes was massive. Those heavy screen used as kids where their sleep was really messed up and they were nowhere near as happy as the light screen user group because we're not supposed to be zooming, we're supposed to be farming, you know. It's going to be so much more sedentary and my understanding, I guess it comes back to like the homeostasis of our body, that, that sleep pressure that builds up. Our body's looking for those cues to let us know when it's time to go to sleep and um, mm -hmm. as far as I'm aware, the way that our body perceives those, that blue light is that, oh, it's, it's still daytime. It's not time to produce that melatonin yet. So melatonin's made best under conditions of blue end spectrum light. And that's the light we'll get out of the sky in the morning, lunchtime, early afternoon. Then you get a red shift. So it gets more orangey, dim, redder towards the end of the day. And that's, that tells your pineal gland, stop making the melatonin. It'll be dark soon. And then when signal stops, when it gets dark and you're not getting any more light into your eyes, that tells your pineal gland to release the melatonin and that's sleep promoting. So the blue light is telling your brain to make melatonin. It's telling your brain it's morning time. So if you're looking at those blue screens too close to bedtime, you're confusing that natural signal that it's not, it's, it will stop making it, get ready to release it because it's evening time. Now you can play on that. You, you, we use that. You know, you do whatever it is you do, Marjorie. I don't care. Just do it outside. Don't go and run in, in the gym, uh, you know, under artificial lights or in front of the mirror like so many hamsters. You know, go and run around in the park and you might meet someone and fall in love as well. Great. Um, and then in the, in the evening time, turn off the lights and, and put on side lamps that have got more orangey bulbs in and dim the lighting in your house. And that's going to start signaling your brain that it's evening time. So you can sort of, we can play on this with behavioral stuff, but also environmental adaptation as well. Can you use like light replacement therapy? You know, if you're not going to be outside all day, is there lights that you can use that would give you something similar to what the sun would give you? Right. Um, yes and no. Um, so seasonal affective disorder is treated with bright light therapy. 
and you sit in front of a light box or you go and run around in the park. Now a light box will cost you 150 quid and you're stuck in your cellar staring at this box. Now, how much does a walk in the park cost? And you might meet someone and fall in love. Great. So, you know, I'm not a massive fan of buying these things and then just sat in your cellar by yourself like a hermit. It'd be much better to go and get natural daylight. Now, the other reason why it's better to get natural daylight is the intensity of the light. Um, sound pressure measured in decibels, light pressure measured in lux or lumens. Now, I'm you, me, we're sat in inside in front of machines we're probably sat in about 300 lux right now um the light pressure you get out of the very best light boxes maybe 1500 2000 lux you will get 3000 lux through the worst november day the sky is gray clouds are touching the the the, the ground you know, you can't see 50 yards because of the mist. You'll still be getting 3,000 lux through that sky. And if you're outside on a really bright, sunny day, whew, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 lux through a bright, sunny day. So you've got orders of magnitude more light pressure outdoors, even on a bad day, than you'll ever get from a light box or being indoors. And that's really, I mean, you know what a day outside feels like. You just sleep like the dead afterwards. And it's because of that massive amount of signal that we get. And people who live and work outdoors all the time don't have sleep problems because they're signaling this all the time. So in terms of a treatment, well, do whatever you like, Marjorie. I don't care. Just do it outdoors. Um, and you, you just naturally benefit from that at the same time as doing what else you, you do. And when we talk to uh, health professionals, you know, we talk, trained a lot of OTs, physios, um, psychologists, we say just do what you'd normally do with your client. Just do it outdoors. Don't get Terry to go and exercise in the gym. Get him to run around in the park. Don't sit in the gloomy therapy room doing your session. Go and do it outside. And, you know, meet your client in their house and go and sit in the back garden and talk to them. There, there are so many ways that we can innovate around this. I've seen people in intensive care beds wheeled out into the car park or the hospital with, with their machines to give them some natural daylight. It's possible. All we have to do is innovate and it's another thing that we can use, you, you, you know, um, I, I'll give the example, Terry's agoraphobic, he's not left his house for 30 years. You can't just grab him and take him to Tesco's, it's too much. But you can take him and move him to his back door and open the back door for a week. Then next week, you can move him outside the back door and then halfway down the garden path the next week, the end of the garden path the next week, then out the front door, then the second lamppost on the left, and three months later, we're going to Tesco's. So you build a sort of graded exposure intervention for Terry whilst using the natural daylight that then improves his sleep. If you've got lots of melatonin buzzing around in your system, your body can break that down and make serotonin. Serotonergic depletion is associated with depression. And that's why seasonal affective disorder is treated with bright light therapy. Light stimulates Pineal gland makes melatonin. Melatonin can get broken down and make serotonin, which is mood enhancing. And that's why we like being outdoors as well. It makes us happy. So you've got a triple whammy there for Terry. You've, you've got small achievable goals to break him out of his agoraphobia. You've got the daylight, which you're just using by proxy. It just happens to be there in the background, but that's helping him sleep better. More melatonin, more melatonin, more serotonin, improve mood. So you get a triple whammy just by dragging him outside so 
there's an intervention for everybody. I, we see a lot of, say, uh, neurodiverse children. We know kids on the autistic spectrum have suppressed melatonin secretion rhythms. Is that condition specific or is it because these kids don't get outdoors so much? I don't know. We don't know. But I think we've got a nice intervention there. Let's just try and chuck them around outside a bit more and see if they sleep better. Probably will. Because we all have these bits of our brain. If you're alive, you've got a pineal gland that's working. You've got a brainstem that's working. So it doesn't really matter if you're three years old or 103 years old. We can still use this. Um, so this, this is a really good example of something which is absolutely universal for all of us. Just go outdoors more. You'll sleep better. I think there's a theme that that fits in, uh, Dave, is there's no kind of newfound gadget. Um, you can't reinvent a wheel. It's those things that have been around for a while. You kind of strip things back to basic, and that's, that's where the answer is. There is a sort of tendency in this day and age that you've got to have an app for everything. Um, and sleep's no different. There's loads of sleep apps out there, and, and then you have to access them by looking at a blue screen thing. Uh, if it's about sleep, you might be looking, encouraged to look at the blue screen thing at bedtime because you're logging stuff about your sleep, which makes you think about your sleep. Um, sleep's controlled by your brainstem. Therefore, we've been sleeping as modern man for 10,000 years without any gadgets or gizmos, right? Cavemen just still slept. Uh, but your brainstem, my brainstem, the caveman's brainstem really isn't that different from a lizard's. So you could say that we've had this sleep thing going on for millions of years without any help. It didn't need any help. It happens every night for every living thing without any help. You just let it happen. And what, um, right, so I'll give you, an, if you look at it from another way around, right? So you're not right now thinking about your, whole, um, your breathing or your heart rate. Your, your brainstem's just dealing with that. It's an autonomic function. But if I get you to just focus on your breathing for a second and just notice that your breathing's getting a bit shallower and then that your heartbeat's starting to beat a bit far and your breathing's getting shallower and you have a, ah! Now that's a panic attack, right? That's where your higher cortex starts to interfere with your brainstem doing its thing and you start to overthink and panic. And then you hyperventilate and you pass out and your cortex sort of depotentiates because you're unconscious, but your brainstem doesn't. That's still doing what it's going to do anyway. And it then says, oh, all right, calm down, let's breathe, let's get the blood pumping around. Then you reoxygenate, you regain conscious and think, oh, no, I've done it again. I've had another panic attack. Now, insomnia is exactly the same. It's just this higher cortical stuff interfering with your brainstem. If you could switch your cortex off, your brainstem will just take you to sleep. It does every night anyway. Eventually, even in the worst insomniacs, the brainstem just says, look, shut up. We've got to go to sleep now. I have to tidy this office up. If I don't, one night of sleep deprivation, my office is such a mess. I'm not functional. I'm not safe to drive. I've got to do it. So shut up and go to sleep. Eventually, your brainstem pushes that cortical overactivation down. And we can use that as treatment. Most people with insomnia at least a little bit anxious about it. This is higher cortical stuff. If you can dial that down that's just going to enable your brainstem to do what it does anyway and that at that sort of fundamental level that's why no gadgets or gizmos for sleep have ever worked or ever will work because they're just taking your attention to something which requires nothing good sleep needs nothing 
bad sleep gets it all. Oh, lavender pillows, chamomile tea, lavender spray, valerian tablets. Da, 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 da. I, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm right up in my cortex with this now. I need, and um, you meet some people with insomnia every now and again. They say, oh, you know, you can't help me. I've tried everything. And it's like, yeah, that's the problem, Marjorie. You're just trying too hard. <laughs> you know, actually sleep needs nothing. Stop trying. That's what we need to do. So that's for that reason and that reason alone, no gadgets, no gizmos have ever worked or will ever work. And they're, they're, all, they're, they're always out there. There's, there's loads of examples of gizmos that have come along. Oh, here's the latest, greatest gadget. And then they don't work. And then they disappear and they're replaced by another one. And that, that, that cycle will continue. So it's just good marketing, really, that pushes them out there. And that's where we hear about them. On the topic of marketing, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about your book, because much of what we've spoken about today is in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we finish up? Sure, yeah. Thanks, James. Um, so, uh, I've, Routledge published, it's called Teaching the World to Sleep. It's on, on Amazon. Uh, Routledge published that in 2017. Um, and it's uh, written for intelligent lay readers who might be struggling with their sleep they could use that as a kind of a self-help book to as a workbook to, to treat themselves um but it's also very much written with mine to as an accompaniment to the training that we do to health professionals so it's about the evolution of cbti where it's come from a critique of it in its conventional sense and then this is a, a sort of a a position piece on our second generation cbt process which takes the problems with conventional CBT and, and makes them more patient-centered and adapts the process more closely to the individual, does a better formulation, and therefore improves our clinical outcomes. So our REST program, which is a second-generation CBTI program, is now hitting sort of 80 85% of people because we do it in a bit more of a, a tailored way. Um, you know, we, we, we front-end assessment processes and things like that. So... Yeah, if anyone's interested in that, you could use it to treat yourself. Um, and then the, the last chapter of the book is applying CBTI techniques to more vulnerable groups. So kids, older people, carers, brain injury, menopause, pregnancy, drug and alcohol use, um, a range of, you know, those more vulnerable groups in society and how we how we adapt CBTI to those those populations. That's all we have time for, though, David. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. That was excellent. My pleasure. Thanks.